Lord, we thank you that uh, we have so many blessings that we can take advantage of even when we're dealing with noise and uh, things that would distract us. Lord, we thank you that we can just close the windows and turn on the air and still be even more comfortable than we were without it. Lord, we thank you for our nursery workers and the children's church and toddler's church, all those that work with the little children. Lord, we thank you for answering prayers and working in our lives. And Lord, we just praise you for your goodness and grace. We thank you that we can see just a little bit of it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Brother Frond. Take our Bibles and turn once again to Matthew chapter 3. I think is as good a place to start as any on this subject. We are going through a series Sunday night, How to Study Your Bible. And um, probably should have worked out to have a nice big handout for everybody, but sometimes handouts, if they don't have enough information on them, are more confusing uh, Joseph, that is all. I am not going to interrupt the service again. Now just sit still and be kind there and we'll be done. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and we're going to be introduced to this idea. Of course, one of the laws, one of the rules that we use in studying is we call the law of first mention. When God mentions something first in the Word of God, he often explains it, and we truly see that here in the issue of baptism. And baptism, before we get into the actual Bible study, is one of those things, it's like the Lord's Supper. What is so confusing is not what the Bible says, it's what everybody says the Bible says. Um, let me tell you, wars have been fought Martyrs have been made over the issue of baptism. And of course, as we look to this thing uh, called baptism, we, we don't want to try to make the Bible fit what we believe. What we want to do is we want to make what we believe fit the Bible. That is the earmark of the Baptist people. That is why... Uh, that is our, our heritage. It's a godly one, and we should keep it and, and be very careful with it. And so we come here in John, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I looked up that word Baptist in my Oxford English Dictionary just to make sure I had the right definition. No, if I want the right definition, I look it up in the Bible. Amen. Uh, and uh, we can use good dictionaries to confirm and to make sure that what we are, are understanding is proper and correct English. But John the Baptist, what is a Baptist? A Baptist is somebody who baptizes. That's what John was doing. Now, one of the problems that we have here is when we talk about this issue of baptism, people are all the time trying to make connections. I, I want you to understand that baptism, as what John did, has no connection 
with anything prior to in the Word of God. It's a brand new thing. It was not used before. It was not simply a derivative of one of the washings in the Old Testament. Most Bible scholars try to make baptism just another ceremonial washing. Uh, Why did the priest take a bath, a washing, before he became the priest? Uh, He was, he held that title in his heredity, but before he was consecrated to serve as a priest, he had to go through the consecration process. That would take seven days. He would first bathe all his flesh in water in the tabernacle. Now, we had a baptism this morning. Aren't you glad that we don't have to install shower stalls up here on the platform and take a bath in order to serve the Lord. That's not what this was about. But God was trying to teach something about the priesthood that you had to be clean, both physically and spiritually, in order to serve as a priest. Now, most kids, boys especially, would love it. If all they had to do to get a bath was to just jump in the pool and it would be clean. You ever wonder why we have showers before you go into the swimming pool and showers when you come out of the swimming pool? It's because you don't get clean in the swimming pool. Uh, There's some things that need to happen. It's called soap. It's called scrubbing. Uh, Baptism is not a cleansing ritual. That's not what it's about. That's why people confuse baptism with salvation is they try to plan this thing. They try to make connection. In fact, I was reading in a Presbyterian book one time and the fellow was making a connection between baptism in the New Testament and circumcision in the Old Testament. And I'm sitting here going, man, you've got to be smoking something really special to make that connection. I mean, there's just nothing there that we should be hooking these things together. That's why it's not, the Bible is not worded, John came baptizing in the wilderness. No, we have John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. This thing of baptism is not connected to the Old Testament, other than in some types and pictures that we will get into. And so John comes, and John is going to explain his baptism. We come here to verse 6, and they and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come, to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring therefore, I'm sorry, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Look at verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes. I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with, the, and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, 
And he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, and he will burn up, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now we look here, and John says, I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. Now, can getting wet in water, we had a little confusion at the baptism this morning. Uh, do you believe that the water is going to save you? And, and poor Roberto got nervous and said, yeah. Uh, but we had been over that several times in the office before, and, and he, his faith was in Jesus Christ. But you'll do crazy things when you have to get up in front of a bunch of people. Most of us know that. It's kind of scary up here sometimes. But John, does getting wet make you any more repentant? No. It was an outward symbol of what was going on in your heart. That's what baptism is. It is an outward picture of what was going on. And that's why John's criticism to the scribes and Pharisees was so strong. He said, bring forth therefore fruits. He said, I want you to prove I'm not going to baptize you just because you stand in line. He says, I want to see that you're laying aside your tradition and your self-righteousness and all the filthiness of your own religion to prepare your heart for the coming Messiah. Are we still together? And so, but then John complicates things. He said, there cometh one after me who is mightier than I. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, if you'll remember, we talked about this when we were going through being careful with words that, and then also types and pictures in the Bible. See, what we're doing now is we're applying everything that we have studied over the last eight, ten weeks, and, and we're starting to make physical application in our doctrine, in our faith, and in our practice, how we have come to believe this. Uh, we do not believe in practice what, what we do because I went to a Baptist college and they taught me how to baptize. No, actually, I went to a Baptist college and I got baptized while I was there because I found out I didn't do it right when I was a kid. And uh, that wasn't taught in the classroom. That was taught in the pulpit of the church I attended. You have to get saved first and then baptized. I did it the other way around. And at that time, we didn't have a very strong preacher in, in the church. And when I went and, and told different people in the church that I just got saved, it was like, oh, you, you've always been saved. You just rededicated your life. Don't worry about that. Well, when I got in Bible college and started studying what I was going to teach to other people... My pastor came to me and said, do you get this thing right? And I, no, I didn't. Well, then you're not baptized. How are you going to be a preacher if you're not willing to be baptized? He said, it's kind of humbling for a college student to get baptized. And I said, well, I think that's what it's all about now, isn't it? And he said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's being obedient to the word of God. That's water baptism. Now, let's just review very quickly what these baptisms of fire and of the Holy Spirit are. Verse 12 is the picture. 
whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat into the garner, but burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay? How many of you have seen the ancient threshing methods? They would have a big stone uh, platform in the ground. I mean, it wasn't, they would just literally take a rock and smooth it off. They would cut the heads off the wheat or bring the rice or barley or other grains there. They would put the grain while it was in the head on the threshing floor. Depending on the type of grain, they would either drag a rake over it or have the oxen walk upon it or different things, different tools were done. They would, some of the uh, uh, harvest would be beaten with whips until the seed, the grain, was separated from the husk. Now you had a mess. You had the grain and the husk in a big pile on your threshing floor. How were you going to separate those? Well, verse 12 was something that was absolutely familiar with every person who was alive and listening to John preach, you would get the fan and you would fan, make a breeze and you would toss the mixture of husk and kernel or chaff and wheat up into the air. The chaff being weightless by the fan, the breeze would be blown to the end of the threshing floor the kernels, the grain, the wheat was heavy. It would fall back down. When the th floor was thoroughly purged, all of the chaff was blown to the end of the threshing floor, and the wheat laid in a nice heap right in the middle of the floor. The wheat was then taken and put into the garner, the storage, so that the animals wouldn't eat it, it wouldn't spoil, it wouldn't get rained upon, it wouldn't rot. They would have food to eat during the winter. And we've gone over this before. The chaff, it's worthless. Uh, chaff only has one basic use, metamucil. Uh, that's the only thing you can do with it. Uh, you could eat chaff until you literally uh, split your stomach and not get one bit of nutrition from it because there's no nutrition in chaff. If you just left it set there, it would rot. Sometimes it would spontaneously combust, burn the farm down. I mean, the rats would live in it. You had to get rid of it. And so they would have a fire. Now, this was something, a picture, a type that was familiar to every person John was speaking to. Baptism of the Holy Ghost is wheat into the garner. Baptism of fire is the unquenchable fire the chaff is burned up. Let me ask you a question. What is the scope of the two baptisms spoken of here? It is eternal. God gives an eternal salvation. Souls into heaven. Eternal. Amen? Baptism of fire... Souls into the lake of fire, again, it is eternal. May I remind you that only Jesus has the power over heaven and hell. I remember one time when I was working as a, in, as a student in Bible college, I worked in the Assembly of God nursing home. 
there in Springfield, Missouri. It was a very nice place to work, but uh, I, I saw some interesting things there. There was one guy was watching this uh, preacher, and so I walked into the room to attend to him and take care of things. And the preacher repeatedly, in the few minutes I watched, preached a sermon that Jesus took the keys of death and hell from the devil when he resurrected from the dead. Now, I want to tell you something that's blasphemy. Jesus has never turned loose the keys of death and hell. We've already been through that in the book of Revelation. The key to the bottomless pit, an angel descends from heaven. Who has the keys? The lamb that sits upon the throne. He has given keys to be opened. Peter had the keys of the kingdom, the key of salvation for the Jew, the key of salvation for the Gentile. But the keys of death and hell have always been held by Jesus Christ, no one else. John the Baptist is asserting that right here. He has two baptisms, the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God, which is salvation, the baptism of fire, which is damnation. This is the work that Jesus claimed to do. Now, why do they use the term baptism? Because that's the term God wants to use. Remember, this is a new thing. It is what we call eternal security. Once you are saved, you are eternally secure in Jesus Christ, and let me tell you something, if you pass from this life without Jesus Christ, you are eternally secured in your separation from God from ever, eternally secured in your damnation. You need to be saved. That's what John is saying. He says, the water baptism I give you is a picture. And we can read in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1. These same words are going to be basically repeated because this is what John came doing. He came baptizing with water unto repentance. If you were repenting, if you were looking forward to the coming Messiah, what did you do? You left the city, you left the temple, you left the synagogue, you went out into the wilderness where no one lived, you found the Baptist preacher, John the Baptist, and you were baptized. Was John the only one baptizing? No. John had his disciples. You may know some of them. Andrew was one of John's disciples. Philip was one of John's disciples. In fact, many of Jesus' disciples came from those who were disciples of John. Because God was introducing something brand new. It was not in the mind of the Jewish people that Messiah would appear as a man. They understood that he would appear as a king. That he would rule and reign. And the Bible tells us to look for that coming Messiah. We find it actually prophesied more fully. Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns... With the armies of heaven, by the way, who does the fighting? Jesus does. Armies in heaven don't fight because Jesus gets it all done with his spoken word. Amen. And so here we have 
Christ coming to John, look at verse 13, the example. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan to John, unto John to be baptized of him. Now, I can't tell you how many times I read that verse and never applied what it said. Jesus walked from Galilee to Jordan and sought out John the Baptist where he was. The best way I know how to illustrate this, and if you've been through baptism at our church, this is you're getting a repeat here, but uh, we're just applying these things. A person of greater authority calls those of lesser authority to come see him. What we have here is we have Jesus doing exactly the opposite. We have Jesus going, who is the greater authority, going to where John is, the lesser authority, and submitting to baptism by John. What is the illustration here? If you're going to serve God... You're going to have to find God's authority, submit to it, and be baptized in water. It is the perfect illustration of what happened this morning in our baptistry here. You find that authority. Nobody questions John's authority. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Amen? How do we get authority for New Testament baptism? Uh, Same place John got his. The Word of God. But Jesus, when he commissioned the church to baptize, didn't commission 45 different kinds of churches. He commissioned his church to baptize. Just like God only commissioned John to baptize, John and his apostles baptized as far as we understand. We have here an authority, God's Word. If a church calls itself a church and doesn't obey the Bible, does it have scriptural authority to baptize? No. If a person believes the Bible completely and they're not a church, do they have scriptural authority to baptize? Uh, No, you have to have both. And believe it or not, over the years, we've seen both. Scriptural authority rests in the Word of God through a Bible-believing church. You have to have both in order to have scriptural Bible baptism. It's the only way you can be consistent. You don't sit here and say, I like your church, but... I know your preacher. He and I were students in Bible college. We fought all the time. We hated each other, so I'm not going to accept your baptism. We have that kind of foolishness going on in religion. It ought not be going on in Jesus' church. The authority is in the Word of God through a local church. If that church does not believe properly about the Bible, about salvation about its own authority. Can a church that was started by a group of men be under the authority of Jesus Christ? I don't believe so. A church ought to be started by a church. 
And see, denominationalism is where a man or a group of men control churches. That's not in the scriptures. If a church takes its authority and cedes it to some organization, it ceases being a scriptural church. It ceases having the authority to scripturally baptize. And so, this is the connection, and now we're going to get confusing here for a minute. I want you to turn with me to, well, maybe I should hold off on that for a minute. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, and let's just watch it practiced in the New Testament, how these men who were taught by God obeyed it. Now, it was very easily easy in Acts chapter 2 for scriptural baptism. How many scriptural churches were in existence in Acts chapter 2? There was only one. It was only in Jerusalem. There weren't 50 different kinds of churches at this point. There was only one. We get down to, to verse uh, 41. It says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Now this is the picture. This is the illustration. This is the actual life of the apostles. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. People believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were baptized. They were immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. And they were added unto them. Many churches have uh, quite a process to become a member. Uh, you, You have to attend classes, and some even have a test that you take, and and then you have to uh, get baptized, and then you uh, have to do more things. The Bible says, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them. Now, we've had some people get baptized, and the same day we never saw them again. That's not scriptural. But... We're, we've got to be careful that we don't judge people in and out of heaven. Amen? Somebody comes to me, I believe it's my duty as a pastor to believe them. Now, if they have 45 piercings and 13 different colors of hair and dressed in chains and leather and says, I really want to believe in Jesus, uh, I think I'm going to say, you know, we need to talk about a few things. Because people who believe in Jesus don't give a testimony as if they're part of the world. That's part of gladly receiving his word. Amen? I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with couples that have come and said, we're we're putting our lives together here and we want to get baptized and we think this would be a great church to live in. And are you married? Well, no, but we're going to get married. Uh, Wait a minute. The Bible says you can't do that. So we could baptize you, but then we'd have to kick you out of the church since we baptize you. 
uh, put you on church discipline because you're living against the Word of God. So let's get that sin problem solved. How many of you remember Brett and Maggie Shrep? They were here just for a couple of weeks. They got saved, they got married, they got baptized, and they moved to Atlanta. I just hate it when that happens. But the Lord knows what He's doing because they're serving God faithfully in that church in Alpharetta, Georgia. Amen? And I'm glad for that. But this is baptism. This is how it was practiced. The Jews had a problem. They believed that only Jewish people could be saved. How did God solve that problem? Acts chapter 10. Now here's where the sign of speaking in tongues comes into being. Acts chapter 2, God uses this sign to prove to the Jewish people the message that Peter preached was from God. He did the same thing in Acts chapter 10 to prove that Cornelius of the Italian band was saved. That God would save Gentiles, even the lowest of the low, the Roman soldiers that oppressed the Jewish people. If God would save them to the Jewish mind, he could save anybody. Amen? And so they were baptized. If you're not a Jew, Acts chapter 2, you're a Gentile. Acts chapter 10. You wonder why we do not have speaking in tongues today? Is you do not read to reprove what has already been proved. You see, this one issue of baptism connects every major Bible doctrine. It touches salvation. It touches the church, the polity of the church, how it's run, how it functions. Certainly it deals with the authority of the Word of God to tell us what is baptism and what isn't. Uh, the baptism uh, deals with your surrender to the authority of the local church and your desire to become a part of that local body and serve Christ in it. Baptism touches every part of your Christianity. This is why so many people have sought to pervert baptism in so many ways. And uh, it is... Sim uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll just take a minute there. Now, Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church. And, of course, that was a church that had a lot of problems. They were dividing up into little groups and said, I'm a, I'm a Paul Christian, I'm a Peter Christian. And then the um, uh, Apollos was a great preacher there. And, and they said, I'm a Christian after Apollos. And, and uh, finally, you had the last group of all. Um, when I was a Bible college student, we called them pious gas bags. Uh, because all they were was a bunch of gas, but they were trying to be pious and super religious. I'm of Christ. Hey, Paul starts here in verse 14. He says, is Christ, uh, 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, as we read these verses, Paul is not condemning the act of baptism. What he is saying is, baptism by water as membership into a church is not salvation. You've got to believe the gospel... And then when you get baptized, you're not identifying with the preacher that baptized you. You're identifying with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who saved you. And that's the connection between the baptism of spirit and of fire and of water. Are we still all together? And so this is how baptism is practiced in the New Testament. Now we have... A lot of different derivatives, and I'll take just a few minutes, and we'll, we'll pick up with problem passages, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Uh, there's passages in the Bible that make this simple understanding, could make it a little difficult. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through uh, these different uh, passages and we're going to deal with them. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about baptism for the dead. And the Mormon church has built an entire library of doctrine on that one little phrase. Uh, we're going to give you a very simple biblical understanding of what baptism for the dead is. Um, but because our time is running short, we will wait until next week. Uh, Lord willing to do that. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter, I've been quoted this by many Church of Christ people, baptism saves you. No, that's not what it says. It's a like figure whereunto baptism doth now save you. It's not baptism that saves you. Baptism is not salvation. It's identification. The best way for, for me to illustrate baptism is it's your birth certificate. How many of you have seen your own birth certificate? Does your birth certificate prove you're alive? Uh, no, you do that by showing up. Amen? Not trying to be smart or ridiculous here, but you prove you're alive by showing up. What does your birth certificate do? It proves when you were born and whom your parents were. That's what your birth certificate certifies. Baptism certifies that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you are willing to be publicly identified with him and his church. That's baptism. It's not connected to anything in the Old Testament, though there were washings in the Old Testament. You washed yourself in the Old Testament. You don't baptize yourself. You have to go to a church and get baptized. Baptism is not salvation. You have to read Acts chapter 8. You've got to be saved. 
then you get baptized. Paul said, I came not to to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But once you preach the gospel, let me tell you something. Paul believed in baptism and practiced it. He was talking to the Corinthian church. And so, we see in history many people taking this thing called baptism and trying to, for lack of a better phrase, here's how it worked. Let me just give you an outline of the history. We had many preachers, quote-unquote. How many of you have ever seen one of those history libraries, the church fathers, the Nicene, the anti-Nicene, the anti-Nicene? It's, it's like 30 or 40 books. And many of their writings are the most ancient writings outside the scripture that we have talking about things that are in the Bible. Uh, mark it down, most of those guys are unsaved. Uh, have no idea what the Bible teaches, but all you had to do to become a church father is write something on paper and have it survive. I mean, we've had some real guys. I mean, I could tell you stories about some of these quote-unquote church fathers that would make your hair fall out. Uh, It would just, you'd say, how can somebody who does all of these perverse things? Um, We have a guy named Origen that people like to uh, uh, say all kinds of stuff about. And you could say all kinds of stuff about Origen. But his claim to fame was he was a collector of then-existent Bible perversions. If you read some of Origen's writings, you would think he was saved. If you read other of Origen's writings, he claims that Jesus Christ was a created being and that that, uh, salvation was by works and that uh, his version of the Bible was the best and that you could trans uh, take words out and put numerical equivalents in and look for hidden meanings like the Kabbalah. I mean, Norgin had every perversion known to mankind kind of wrapped up in himself. And yet he's a church father. Why? Because he lived 250 AD. He wrote things down. And we still have a few little bits and pieces. That's how you become a church father. Well, could you possibly imagine these people like Origen and his ilk being confused about how a person gets saved. Could anybody imagine such a thing? Yes. And so they begin to equate water baptism and salvation. Well, that starts about 200 and they keep arguing about it until about 400 AD. And over the time as they're arguing... This is the basic line of thought, and of course, it's an oversimplification. If you get saved by being baptized in water by the church, which is wrong, but if that happens, then isn't it foolish for us not to baptize babies? Because most children died before they reached seven years old, what we would call an age of accountability, an age of understanding. And so why would we withhold salvation from those children? Let's baptize them as young as possible. 
the counter viewing, uh, the counter view was that you waited until you knew you were ready to die so that when you got baptized, the biggest part of your sins were washed away by the waters of baptism. Uh, Constantine believed that one as far as we know, and he waited until he was near his deathbed and had himself dipped in the river so that he could wash his sins away. I have no hope of seeing Constantine in heaven. Because if you're trusting in the water to get you there, it's not going to work. It's the blood to get you to heaven. Human reasoning based upon a perverted understanding. In the medieval ages, baptism of children was used to control the masses. Here's how it happened. You had a child. You didn't show up to register your child at the local consistory, have them baptized, sprinkled as an infant. Guess what? The police showed up at your door. They said, why haven't you had your child baptized? Well, we don't believe that. Many times they would then take your child down to the church, baptize him, give that child to somebody else, and throw you in prison. Now, before we condemn someone, if that was the case, how many of you would be standing in line to get your baby baptized so you didn't get thrown in prison, and at least you could keep your child? That's what many people did. Those were very fearful days. I don't know how you could get something so perverse out of the simple Bible teaching on baptism, but they did. Fought wars about it. What we want to do is we want to follow the Bible. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. He saves you. You then go through the waters of baptism to publicly identify and proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ. It's an interesting point. All of the great reformers, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, all died baptized Catholics. Baltasar Hubemeyer repudiated his Catholic baptism and was baptized as a Baptist. He survived to preach his baptism five years. He was caught and murdered by the Catholics. But in those five years, we have records of 10,000 conversions. And I have a copy of his book on my shelf. Baltasar Hubemeyer was a Baptist because he refused to keep the baptism of the infant and identified with Jesus Christ. Somebody said, I don't want to get baptized again. Well, you didn't get baptized in the first place if you didn't have the scriptural authority, right? If you're going to do it, you got to do it right. That's how simple it is. We're not here trying to be mean. We are trying to be biblical. And we want to follow in the footsteps of those 
that gave their lives to serve the Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful thing called baptism that pictures our salvation, our relationship with you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful and true to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll give you an opportunity to just pray at your seat.